chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And uh, why don't we go ahead and read that, then we'll, we'll pray and ask God's blessing on it. It says this starting in verse 1, um, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Not by only water, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. And since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you once again just for this time we have to share together. I thank you, God, for this book that we hold in our hands that is your word to us, God, your, your letter, God, written to your people to give us instruction on how to live an understanding of who you are and, and what you want from our lives, Father. And, and you even tell, even tell us in here in this book what, what, what the power is in our lives to do it, your power through us, through your spirit. Heavenly Father, tonight I pray you would teach us, I pray you would challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us, convict us. Whatever it is, God, that we need, God, you know us as individuals, and I pray that you would move in our hearts and lives. Father, I pray that you would just reign in this place, and you'd be glorified and honored through it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today as we continue in this study of the book of 1 John, we're, we're running down to the end of it this week, and next week will be our last um, two, two weekends here in, uh, in this book. And what we've been looking at all throughout this is this main idea of us walking in the light and love of God. And as we've seen, um, that's, this idea of walking in the light and love of God is the idea of, of us as Christians walking in intimate fellowship with God. And when we do that, we can experience the goodness of God. That's the love of God, right? Well, all, all those things that, that come from Him, we get to experience those things. But um, this, this title that I've given, as I've said week after week, it, it's kind of a uh, two sides of the same coin. There, there's one aspect of it about what we receive as we walk in God's love, but it's also about what we give. It, it's also about how us walking in the light, literally in our lives, showing people Christ so that we can be a conduit of God's love to the people around us. And that's really kind of the main idea of this whole book. Now, one thing we've also seen throughout this book is that what God wants from us, Satan wants the opposite. If, if God wants to walk in intimate fellowship with us so that we can experience his love, guess what Satan wants? He wants the opposite. 
and he will do anything that he can do to distract us, to discourage us, to, to cause us a sin, to tempt us, whatever that may be, to, to pull us away. He does that as he lures us, uh, our, our flesh, as we talked about back in chapter 2, I think it was. He, 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 he does stuff like puts his little minions in place, these false teachers, these antichrist spirits, if you will, that, that he's placed to, to try to deceive God's people. And he, any, anything that he can do, any way that he can do it, he will try to distract us from where we're supposed to be as God's people. And the other side of this is that if, if God wants us as Christians to be unified, united, loving one another, can I tell you that Satan is doing everything that he possibly can to make that as hard as possible? The, the reality of the Bible that, that we see in really a big picture is that when it comes to God's people, when it comes to Satan... There is a very, very real spiritual war that is taking place. A spiritual war that I'm sure that you all have felt. You may not be able to describe what it is, but, it, but it's something you feel inside of you. Um, just th this pull, knowing that we shouldn't think these things or so say these things or do these things, and yet we're drawn this way. Knowing we should, we should be connected with Christians and loving one another, and yet we're, we're drawn away from one another, distracted by different things. The source of that is Satan. You know, the, the battle describes the Christian life. The Bible does it as, as a battle. Um, the Bible describes it as a war, as a conflict, as a, as a, as a race. What do all, the, all those have in common? There's an opponent in all those. And this is why the Bible describes this opponent that we have as our enemy, our adversary. And, if, and the reality of this, this spiritual war is this, there's, there's only two sides. There's Satan's side and, and those who belong to God on his side. There's no middle ground. There's there, there's no place where we can go and hide from the war. The war's real, and it's a war that completely, to be completely honest with you, is absolutely inescapable. But victory is possible, but the only way victory is possible is to be on the side of God. So then we have this question, like, well, well how does one get there? If you could picture this battle, so if you've ever seen an old movie about two opposing forces... Picture God on one side, Satan on the other. You know, the Bible tells us that all people, unfortunately, because we're born in sin, we start on Team Satan. Isn't that crazy to think about? That's where we're at. And yet, because of what Christ has done, because of the cross, because of his death and his resurrection, making salvation possible, it says it's as if, as if Christ walks out of the, of, the, of the line of God's army and, and he walks out to the middle and he's put his hand out to all the people on Satan's side and says, come, I want to bring you over there. You're in a place where defeat is inevitable but, but through me, he, I want to bring you to God's side. See, as we think about victory in our lives, victory is possible, but it's only possible as we go through Christ. Like, He is the portal of our victory that we have to pass through if we want to have 
victory. As we think about this passage of Scripture, um, in in verse 1 and in verse 5, it it gives two descriptions of Jesus. And it says, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, there that word for Christ is the same exact word as Messiah. To, To the Jews, it was the one who they believed was going to come and save them from their enemies, right? Uh, in, in their mind, at least originally before Christ, before the, we, the gospel as we know it came about, they didn't picture him as being the son of God. They, they just pictured as him being some mighty army general, some warrior that was going to come and, and save them, right, from their, from, from their enemies. But if you go down to verse 5, it's not just Jesus as Christ, it's believing Jesus is the son of God. And both of these things are necessary. It's, it's Jesus is the portal through which victory um, is won, right? We have to go through him. I mean, John 14 tells us, he says he's the, he's the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to that side. Nobody gets to the Father without him. You know, in John 10, 9, he says, I'm the door by which you enter. But what's so important to understand is, and remember the context of this book, what, what these people were dealing with. These people were dealing with this false teaching that on one side of the coin, these people believed that Jesus was just human, that he couldn't have been divine because God wouldn't have done that, but he was just a human man, that, that maybe the Spirit of Christ came upon him at, at his birth or at his birth or beginning of his ministry, but before he died, the Spirit of God left him, and so it wasn't God that was dying. And then there was the other side of where people believed and taught that, that he was just spirit, that he really wasn't human. And yet John again pulls this out that says if you want to be on God's side, if you want victory, you have to go through the right Christ, if that makes sense. It's the idea that we as people, we have to have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. Because this is the only way that the gospel, the true gospel, can can save us is by believing in the true Christ. Uh, Believe in some false Christ, some false aberration of some Christ, or some make-believe Christ is not going to get us to where we need to be. Think about why this is, it's, it's so essential that we believe that Christ was fully man and fully God. If he wasn't fully man, he couldn't have came to earth. He couldn't have been tempted to sin. He couldn't have died. But if he wasn't fully God, he would have been born into sin, marred just like we were, and it would have been impossible for him to do what he did on the cross. But because he was fully man, he was able to die. Because he was fully God, he was absolutely pure. So that when he went to the cross, he was able to pay the full price of our sin and open up the door so that he could be the portal through which we could be saved. And John says here that it's only people that, that believe those two things, that have placed their faith in this reality that Jesus was fully man, he was fully God, and so therefore the, se- the work of salvation through him was absolutely satisfactory in God's sight. It's, it's placing our faith in that truth that is necessary for salvation. But it's not just a correct understanding of who Jesus is, it's also a correct response for, for what Jesus has done. If you look down in verse 4, he says here, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. See, it's not enough. We talked about this in Bible study, I think last week, this difference between knowledge and faith. It's not enough to just have a knowledge of who Christ is. 
It's not enough just to believe that he was fully man and fully God, went to a cross, died, and rose again. That's great. We need to believe that, but it's not the belief that brings people unto salvation. It's not the belief in itself that, that makes us children of God. No, it's, it's placing our faith and trust in that reality and then responding with repentance. That's what has to happen to get saved. It's more than just a, a, a physical knowledge belief. It's a response of faith to that belief that brings us through this portal, which is Christ. Now, as we think about this spiritual war, wouldn't it be great that after we walked through Jesus, right, and, and got on God's side, that the war just would be done? But it's not the way it works, is it? If you remember of our study through, if you remember from our study through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, talked about heaven this way and talked about the way to heaven as, as a broad way and a narrow way, a broad gate and a narrow gate. That, that narrow gate, again, was him, that, that portal through which we must pass, right? But he says, on the other side of that gate is a, a narrow road and a difficult road that leads to life. And as we think about our lives as Christians, as we think about this spiritual war, it's, it's a hard walk. It's a hard path that we follow as Christians, and the only way that we're going to have success is to follow God's plan to victory. And God has given us a plan. It's like God is the general of the army. Again, picture this army. God's the general, right? And we need the general. We need the one who is planning. We need the one who is putting all the strategies together. But who knows? It's not only the general that fights. He gives his plan to the people that are going to go out and wage the war. And guess who that is? That's us. And as we think about the plan of God, and it's a good plan. It doesn't mean, it mean it's easy, but it's a good plan. But he's given us a plan that, that will lead us to victory in this life. And part of that plan, as we see here, is that we need to be partnered rightly together with both God and with people. As we look down at verses um, 1 through 5 again, just listen to what he says here. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And he says, And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. So there's something we have to see. If, if we truly love God, we also love his children. And he says, We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world as we achieve this victory through our faith, and only those who are children of God. Now, we, we've seen this theme all the way through this book, that we're called to walk in God's light so that we can be the light to the people around us. And we've seen this connection to where it's impossible to be rightly connected to God if we're not rightly connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the two go hand in hand. It's impossible to separate them. If this relationship isn't right, it's guaranteed that this relationship isn't going to be right. And even if we think this one's right, if this one's ain't right, guess what? This one ain't right. They have to work in unison together. Which means that, that we as God's people, we have to be rightly partnered together. How does that take place? 
through the obedience to God's word. That's what it says. It says that we show God our love by obeying his commands. The same way we show one another love is by obeying God's commands. Now, they're not easy to do. I mean, it's not easy always to love one another, just like it's not easy to push aside those temptations, those snares that, that Satan puts in our place. It's not easy. In fact, it's difficult. It's hard. And yet he says here that in verse 3, but they're, they're, they're not burdensome. You know, as Christians, I think sometimes as we think about God's Word, we think of it as somehow restricting us from being able to fully experience life. You ever, you ever thought that? Like, man, why does he tell me I can't do this? It looks so fun. But, but John says here that those commands are not burdensome. Now, he, he doesn't say they're easy to follow, just like it's not easy to, to love one another always. But it's not a burden. Why? Because it's only as we obey God's word that victory comes. If we're not obedient to God's word, this relationship is not going to be right. If we're not obeying God's word, this relationship is not going to be right. And even if we're on God's side, if we're not doing that, guess what? Although we may have eventual victory, we will not experience the victory he wants us to in the present. We have to be rightly partnered together, hand in hand, with one another as God's people, walking through life together so that we can be partnered with him. And through both of those things, we can experience present victory in the here and now. So if this is true, we not only need to be rightly partnered with one another, we need to be rightly prepared. Meaning, if, if the key to victory are obeying God's commandments, how important is it, do you think, that we are studied up enough to know God's commandments? See, so often, like, God's Word gets put on the nightstand, and we get to it sometimes. We're busy, we have this going on and that going on, and life's crazy and chaotic, and I just don't have time for this. But isn't it crazy that the thing we don't think we have time for is the only thing that's going to set us up for a life of victory? So, so how important is it that we get in this thing and study it and learn what it is that God wants from us, to learn how to love Him, to learn how to love one another? We need to be studied up rightly so that we can walk in victory. I can tell you it's by no accident that every time we sit down to read, every time we sit down to pray that our minds distracted by something or we get a phone call or kids start screaming or whatever I mean it's, it's not by accident this is a spiritual war and we have to make the decisions to be in this right and it's not just enough to be studied up we need to be suited up this morning in, in men's Bible study we talked about we were talking in Ephesians 6 about the the armor of God that's necessary for our victory and understanding in the book of Ephesians, it's, it's Paul writing as he's chained to a Roman soldier. So it's like he's looking over at this Roman soldier who is, who is fully in his military guard from the helmet down to the shoes with his breastplate that's metal and his sword and his shield and all these different things. And he uses this as, a, as an analogy that, that we need to have as Christians so that we can be victorious. 
Why do we need these things? I just want to read a couple of verses in this passage in Ephesians 6. Starting in verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Did you notice he didn't say be strong in your own power? In His mighty power, he says, Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that we'll be able to stand and resist the enemy during this time of evil. It's the spiritual war that I'm talking about. Now, why is it so important that we're fully armored with the, with the helmet of salvation, the feet shot out with the gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the shield of faith, that it, can, that it can stop all the fiery darts of the enemy, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? Why are these things so important? Certainly for our victory, but as we spoke this morning, remember we talked about talking about that shield? A Roman army would lock those shields together on around them and on the top, and so they were like this impenetrable fortress. But what happens when just one steps aside? It's not only that they themselves are now like vulnerable. Guess what they've done? They've opened up a hole in the middle into where the people they're supposed to be protecting are now vulnerable to the, 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 the enemy's attacks as well. See, the plan of God is that we're rightly partnered together. And to be rightly partnered together, we have to be in the Word of God. Because it's the only way all those pieces of armor are related to what we read about in God's Word. And the thing of it is, as we look down at verse 4, it all comes back to this idea that we, we achieve this victory through faith. You know, it, it, it obviously takes faith to come to Christ through in, in salvation, right? It's by faith we believe those things and therefore respond to that reality. But can I tell you something? The only way we obey, obey, obey the words of God is through faith. We can't do it on our own strength. We do not have the power to do this on our own. We don't have the power to fight this battle on our own. We have to fight in His strength. And the only way we do that is through faith. It's by responding to the reality that we serve a sovereign God that has called us to obedience. And we say, because you are who you are, because you're on your throne, because I am yours and I belong to you, therefore I am choosing in your power and your strength that you give me to do these things. It's a totally different attitude than just, man, I've got to do this so we don't fall, right? No, it's, it's a response to him first and foremost, and it's the only way that it works out. And I'll just add this, if we're going to be rightly partnered together, if we're going to, be, if we're going to follow God's plan to victory, I can, I can I tell you something else we're going to need? Part of faith is acting in full reliance upon the Spirit of God within us all the time. We need to be fully reliant upon Him always. Reliant for Him to control us, to give us restraint when we need restraint, to teach us how to live, to empower and boldness, to be good soldiers of the cross, to fight for us in times of weakness. We have to be fully reliant upon His power and His strength. But friends, that's God's plan. This is the reality of the battle we're in. We can't avoid it. We can't get out of it. It's going to be there. The arrows don't stop coming. And we have one of two choices. We can walk in victory. Or we can walk in defeat. He's given us his plan. But you know the beautiful thing about the Christian life is that we don't have to wonder who wins. 
we've already won. Like, like when, when this passage talks here about our, our victory, it doesn't speak of it as some maybe thing. It speaks of it as something that's already done, already finished. See, in, in this book, this Bible, we have not just history. We have the end of the story that's already been given to us. I love this passage in Isaiah 46.10, one of my favorite passages. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, God says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all that I pleasure, all that, all that pleases me. Like, think about this, and I've said this before, think about the book of Revelation, things that haven't even happened yet. God wrote the end already. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. It, it, it's already been declared. We're already there. It already, in, in the book of Revelation, it describes this, these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of God praising His name. Guess who that is? We're there in God's mind already, even though we're not there yet. The victory's won. And the thing of it is, is, is there's proof of this victory everywhere. We can read the proof in God's Word. As we think about verses 6 through 10, just, I mean, just think about the history we have written here. I mean, it's not just an instruction book for life. It's, it's we have, like, everything documented that's, that tells us that the victory is won and we're victors as Christians, right? So think about verses 6 through 10, um, just, for, just for a moment here again. He says this, Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by His baptism and water and by shedding blood on the cross, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Let's just stop there for a moment. Let's think about the proof again that Jesus was who Jesus said He was. Like this whole argument that John's been making in this book, that Jesus wasn't just some man and He wasn't just some spirit, but that He was the God-man, right? And He says that, that He proved it. Like, he was physically baptized. And what happened at his baptism? The Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove, right? And the voice of God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Pretty obvious, a voice from heaven saying, this is my, I mean, you know, and so like God from there says, this is my son, the one who is physically being touched, getting baptized, this is my son. But he says, it's not just by, by water, but by blood. What's that mean? Probably by the blood that he shed. Now, I just want to read to you just a couple things, right? One in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, listen to this. It says, God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. And so we, one of these proofs we have is like the Old Testament is just packed with things about the suffering servant, about these, this foreshadowing of um, Jesus, what, even going back all the way to the sacrifices in the temple, all these things pointing to Jesus. And then even beyond those prophecies, even beyond the fact that he fulfilled them, consider the moment he was giving up his life on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54. Just listen to what this says. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Stop for a second. This was something man couldn't do. They say that that veil was super, super thick. Like super thick. 
And it wasn't torn from the bottom up as if people were doing it. It was high. And it was ripped from top to bottom. Again, signifying a couple of things. One, that this idea that the, um, the, the, the separation between God and people because of sin had now been, had been, now been torn apart. Right? We now have access to, to God through Christ. And I believe it was also symbolic of this idea of, of the presence of God leaving the temple. You know, there was no longer any need for it because the temple is now where? First Peter, it's here. We are the temple of God. But anyways, he goes on and says, the the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Just some dude dying wouldn't have caused a bunch of dead people to be resurrected. Something special about this guy dying on the cross. It says they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went in the holy city and appeared to many people. And it says in verse 54, when the centurion and those with whom who guarded Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this was the Son of God. So at his birth, you have the angels crying out from heaven about his birth. At his baptism, you have the voice of God saying, this is my son. At his death, you even have the testimony of the the soldiers that were hanging him there saying, surely this was the son of God. John's saying, if you need any proof whatsoever, they knew it. I mean, they they were alive during this, right? It wasn't something that scholars could try to explain away like they they do today. Like, they were living in that time where many of them probably knew of it. Maybe some of them were even there. So he says, there's proof of this victory because you know what Christ has done. You know the testimony of Him. And then he talks, he goes on and says, and the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with His testimony. Now, certainly it was the Holy Spirit descending upon Him. But as we think about the Holy Spirit, it was the Spirit of God who gave the Word of God to all the prophets of old that wrote about Jesus, who, when Jesus came, did all those things and fulfilled all those things the Spirit told the people to write about Him. Right? I know that's like circle talk, but do you get it? Like all those prophecies of old, that was the Spirit of God giving those people those words. I mean, think about Hebrews, um, well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, Right? So the, the work of the Spirit on man. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And so the, this testimony of the Holy Spirit is that the, the, the Jesus had been written about centuries before this. Hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of those things. And, and what's amazing is it's not just that. As we'll see here in just a moment, it's not just the work of the Holy Spirit back then that gives proof because Christ actually fulfilled those things. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and attests to the fact that Jesus is real and that what we believe as the gospel is actually truth. See, one other proof we have, it's not just God's Word and all those things we read about Him and know about Him. I just want to think, think about verse 9 for a second. He says, since we believe human testimony. So you have John, who's an old man by this time, who 
had been through a lot and was still faithful. Think about all the apostles by this time that had probably already been martyred for their faith. And here's just a random question I just want you to think about. If this was just some made-up story, some giant hoax that these men were portraying about this man who claimed to be the Son of God, do you really think they would have suffered, went to prison, and went all the way to their death in some of the most horrific ways for a lie? No. There's truth, there's validation in the reality that they lived for Jesus all the way to the very end, that John, all the way to the very end of his life, stood faithful. But if, even if that's not enough, even if it's not just the, the testimony of the apostles, the, the testimony of, of God's Word, even if it's the fact that, I mean, we've been almost 2,000 years, and guess what, the gospel's still alive, there's Christians still everywhere that are experiencing these things, even if that's not enough, can I tell you something, we have enough inside of us as Christians that proves that everything that John is saying here about Christ is real. If you look again at, at verse 10, he says, All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Why? Because what we saw a couple of weeks ago in 1 John 4, 13, and God has given us His Spirit as proof that, he lives in, that we live in Him and He in us. It's the Spirit of God that gives testimony that what we read in God's Word is absolutely true. It goes back to what we talked about when somebody asks you, prove to me that God is real. We can't. We can't show people that anything that says, see, this proves God is real. Then how do you know? Because He lives in me. The proof is all I need because He has made Himself real day in and day out, and there is nothing that's going to turn me away from this faith. We have so much proof that our victory is real. And as we close, I just want to talk about the, the, this promise, this, this, this reality, this product of our victory, if you will. Again, look at verse 4 one more time where he says this, For every child of God defeats this evil world. That, that word defeats is in the present active tense in the Greek language. And I don't use this verbiage very often, but I do this for a reason. Um, this, this, this term here is given, it's speaking of a present ongoing victory that we personally get to experience as children of God. Well, when, when it's in this present active tense, it means that, that we are the ones experiencing this reality in real time. So when he speaks here of this victory, he's not, he's not simply speaking of the victory over the rainbow when we finally get to be with the Lord. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. It's the victory that we can experience in the here and now. Um, last Wednesday on, on our, in our Bible study, we've been, we've been in, in Hebrews chapter 4 where, where we're talking about this, this promised rest of God. And it was referring to when the Israelites were going into the promised land, that God was giving them a promised rest, but, but it used that to, to, to give a description of this reality that we still have as God's people, that, that God is inviting us right now in the present into His rest. That there is a reality that there's, there's going to be a rest someday in the future, in the ultimate rest in heaven, but even there it speaks of something that we can experience in the here 
and now. In the midst of this battle, in the midst of this war, in the midst of all the things that we're facing, guess what? We can, ex- we can still experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. When, when we're weak and when we're weary, guess what Jesus says? Come to me, you all who are weary and have your burden, I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says he's the God of all comfort, who comforts his people in their time of need. See, that's the rest that we can get right now in the presence as we walk in intimacy with the Lord. But friends, it's not just a promise of present victory. We have the promise truly of eternal victory. And look at verses 11 and 12. He says that this is what God has testified, that he has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And again, he says, whoever has son has life. Again, in the present. It's not, it doesn't notice it that whoever has a son will have life. It says whoever has a son has life. But whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Friends, we have the promise of eternal life. It's not just victory in the present. It's ultimate victory where sin will be defeated, where Satan will be no more, where we will be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever without temptation, without struggle, without pain, without suffering, without death, without sorrow, without any of these things. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Nothing we deserved, nothing we've earned, only because of his goodness and his grace. And friends, we need to stand in that victory. We need to believe it. We need to walk in it. Does it take work? Absolutely, but it is worth it. In the midst of the battle, we can, we can walk in peace. And we can walk in strength. We can walk in his might as we walk in intimacy with him and one another. So let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this time, your word. Father God, Lord, this is a battle that we're in. I know it's a battle, God, that I feel every single moment of every day. God, our, our hearts are drawn to things that they shouldn't be. We struggle with our attitudes, with our pride. We struggle with so many things. Father, I, I just pray that you'd help us in those times to recognize that it's Satan. That it's just one of those fiery darts that he's shooting at us to, to try to get us down, to try to get us away from our source of victory. God, I, I just pray in, in the midst of this battle, God, that we would all choose to cling to your side. That, Father, we wouldn't give in to these temptations, these snares, these lies. But instead, we would do what your word said here tonight and walk in obedience to, with you love you and love your people and as we do God I just pray that that you would help us to experience the the victory that you want us to experience in this world the peace the comfort the joy all those things God grant us the grace to walk in victory and Heavenly Father I'll just pray Lord as I close if there's anybody in this place anybody listening to this that has never made the decision to, to walk through that portal which is Christ that God, they would make that choice tonight by simply trusting and believing in the reality of who Christ is and what He has done and choosing in obedience to respond with repentance. And God, Your Word just says as simple as saying, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me my sins and help me to live for You. And God, Your Word tells us if somebody in faith will do that and mean it, God, they, can, they, they will be Yours and they'll become children of God. Lord, I just pray. And if anybody is unsure, 
If anybody has never made that choice, let them make that choice right now. Lord, I love you. I praise you. I thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Um, as we um, close... Um